Good morning, everyone. Um, it is an honor to be up here with you guys. Um, my name is Dan McIntyre, um, and it has been a minute since I've been up here, so I should probably do the standard introduction. Um, a lot of you are going, who is this guy? And maybe kicking yourselves for not sleeping in this morning. Um, I get it. I get it. I've been there. You know, people don't go to a Lakers games to not see LeBron. So like, hey, good morning. You got me this morning. Um, <clears throat> um, however, it might surprise you. And judging by the lack of balloons in this room, I think it will surprise you that, um, that this is my 40th sermon here at the Oaks. Yeah. Round of applause. <laughs> no, 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 you guys. Um, yeah, I actually had please hold your applause in my notes, but you guys actually applauded. I, that was supposed to be a joke. Um, in the Bible, the number 40 is always significant. Um, Jesus went without food. He fasted. He endured 40 days in the wilderness. The, um, the Israelites, they endured 40 years of wandering in the desert. And as of today, you will have endured 40 sermons from yours truly. So we're going to get badges like I survived, you know what I mean, after, after the end of the, the service. Um, but having a, a, a small catalog of sermons is actually kind of a, a fun thing. Um, it's kind of like, for me, it's like a little bit like having a time capsule. And I sort of imagine like my kids years and years and years from now getting a chance to listen to them and going, Wow. Dad sure made a lot of Lord of the Rings references. He really beat that horse to death. And if you look over my catalog uh, of 40 sermons, you know, two of them are quite good. And 37 of them are all right. Um, And there's one sermon that I would love them all again. Because I have one sermon in my my catalog where I felt like it kind of fell flat and it missed the mark. And ironically, the topic of that sermon is the topic that we have today. Um, So I get my mulligan. Um, Also, ironically, the topic of that sermon is unity, unity of the church, or maybe the disunity that we see in the church. And and you would think that that would be a relatively easy subject to to preach on, Um, because we all agree Unity is important. Like, no one's going, ah, unity, that doesn't matter, I'm leaving. Like, we all agree that there's something there, that we should be united. We all nod our heads. And the Bible paints a picture of what we call the big C church. So, you know, we, we call, sometimes we call it the little C church, we call it the local church. So, like, the oaks would be an expression of a little C church. But the big C church, capital C church, is like all Christians everywhere. And so the Bible paints this picture of this united, big C church, Christians everywhere being unified by a common love of Jesus. So in theory, unity should be easy. Compared to what we have in common, um, our differences should seem small. And when we do have differences, we should just be able to like hug it out, right? We should just be able to, um, to, to come together, hug it out, and, and, and stay united. But that is not what we see, is it? I want you to think about this. How many times have you heard of a church splitting? A group of, of, of people, a group of believers, they, they just say, you know what, you guys go your way, we're going to go our way, we're going to split. 
How many times have we seen denominations split? It, it doesn't happen all the time, but if you were to put like a Google News alert, I'm guessing you'd get two or three hits every single week. I mean, think about this. For the first thousand years of church history, there was one church. There wasn't all these denominations. There was one church, and then in 1054, it split in two. And all the denominations and factions that we see in our Christian environment out there today represents a split, represents a group of people saying, you know what, you go your way, I'm going to go mine. Now, how many times have you heard of a church coming together, of two churches coming together? How many times have you heard of two churches going, you know, it'd be really good, we, we're like pretty close, let's just like worship together. Have you ever heard of two denominations going, you know, it's really silly for us to be separate. Let's just make ourselves one denomination. I haven't heard that happening. I mean, maybe it has. I mean, a lot of things have happened. Maybe it has, but if it's happened, it's rare. Instead of hugging it out and uniting, we punch it out and we divide. And that, I think, is what makes unity so tricky. I think that's what makes this sermon that I'm, I'm preaching this morning, it'll ruffle feathers at times. Um, I think what makes it tricky and makes it a hard thing, and why I needed that mulligan, is because we all love unity in the abstract. We all like it as an idea, as a concept. We like it up until the point that we're asked to concede something. That we're told, you know what? You might be right, but it doesn't matter. And you have to put that aside. Or we're told that you need to bear a relationship with someone that you don't like or that you disagree with or who's hurt you in the past. Abstract unity, the unity that we're okay with, the unity that we all nod our heads and say, yeah, that's important, is less than the unity that's promised to us in the Bible. So today we're going to take a look at some scripture and we're going to see what we can do to promote gospel unity. And gospel unity is a unity centered around the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, the Bible has plenty to say about this. Um, so we'll be jumping around a little bit in scripture. Uh, I'm not anchoring on one particular verse, but I know for the note takers out there, a good outline is a, a helpful thing. So today the outline is going to look like this. We're going to look in Scripture and we're going to see a plea for unity. And then we're going to see a picture of unity. And then we're going to find a power to unlock unity. So a plea, a picture, and a power. Okay, so a plea. What's a plea? A plea is an emotional and urgent request. Um, and a plea for unity is not difficult to find in the Bible. Um, according to one count, there are over, well, there are exactly, but there might be more, 179 verses across the various ver uh, books of the Bible on the subject of unity. And as an early concept, as I was thinking about kind of what would be good to do for this sermon, I considered just going through the list. I considered, we wouldn't get through 179, but we could do 20 of them, rapid fire style, bam, 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 bam. Because when you read it in print, it's overwhelming how many different verses, how much this, this topic is talked about. And it really gives you a sense 
of the, the weight and the importance of this topic. And I want you guys to understand the weight and the importance of unity in the Bible. However, I wasn't ready to start letting people's eyes glaze over this early in the sermon. Um, I can see when people start nodding off. I don't know if you guys know that, but we can totally tell when you start to fall asleep. Um, And I'm not offended because I've been that guy too, but I wasn't ready for that yet. And then, you know, I I had the, the, the wise words of Kevin from the office. You guys know Kevin from the office when he goes, why waste time say lot word when few word do trick? (laughs) And I'm like, all right, I'll just try to like, just get right to the point. Um, So I'm going to focus on one particular piece of scripture um, that talks about the importance of unity. But I need to lay some groundwork because I think this particular piece of scripture is, is even more important. So I want to lay some groundwork um, to kind of build it up a little bit. And to do that, I'm going to need a little help from one of my old friends, Lord of the Rings. Um, if you had first Lord of the Ring reference at like six minutes into the sermon, you just won your pool. Um, so, <laughs> all right. Um, in the books... Uh, actually, I don't want to start there. I want to start by saying that, you know, my favorite character of, of, the, of the trilogy is, is Theoden. And Theoden's the king of Rohan. They're kind of like the, the horse warriors, the, the Germanic kind of Norse-looking people uh, in the book. And if that surprises you that Theoden's my favorite, I recommend um, uh, checking the books out because in the movies, he's portrayed slightly differently. I, I really like how he's portrayed in the movies, um, Bernard Hills, the actor, I think he does an awesome job. Um, but they wrote him a little differently. In the books, he carries himself with a little more valor. Um, and it doesn't always come through in the films. Um, so in the, in the books, he, you know, they, they kind of rescue their, their they kind of secure their town against the battle. And the, the, Ro, the, the people of Rohan, Theoden, he's leading his people um, to go to the aid of Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith is the capital city of Gondor, and they are under attack. The city's under siege. And so Rohan, their ally, is riding to their rescue. And so he's taken this huge army across the lands to, to go and save this city. And as they are coming uh, to the city, as they are approaching, the scouts are coming in, and the scouts are saying things like, there is an unthinkably large army besieging the city of Minas Tirith. And the city is already burning. Um, What you're going to find when you get there is a bunch of rocks and a bunch of orcs. Um, And the idea dawns on Theoden that this is not a winnable battle. He's not riding to victory. He's riding towards death. And you can kind of feel it in the books. He kind of starts like coping with this idea that this is his last ride, the last ride of the Rohirrim. But he never considers abandoning his ally. He never says, they're on their own. We're turning around and going home. He goes, we're going to, you know what, whether we win or whether we lose, we're going to go out there and fight for him. Instead, he, he looks death in the face and he brings his army to like the brink of the battlefield. And um, on the brink of the battlefield, they look out and they see the burning city and they see the massive armies around 
the, the, the city walls. And before leading the charge, he gives this speech. Now, this is where I wish I was a trained Shakespearean actor. I am not. I recommend maybe going and checking out the YouTube video of this. It's, it's going to do it. If you don't get teared up when you watch the YouTube, then I'm sorry. You don't have a heart. Um, but here's the speech. He says, Arise now. Arise, riders of Theoden. Dark deeds awake. Dark it is eastward. Let horse be bridled, horn be sounded. Forth, Aolingus, arise. Arise, riders of Theoden. Fell deeds awake. Fire and slaughter. Spears shall be shaken, shield be splintered. A sword day. A red day. Ere the sun rises. Ride now. Ride now. Ride to Gondor. I'm giving myself chills. Um, it's poetic, right? But facing the chaos of battle and certain death, the last thing, the final thing, I should say, the final thing that Theoden wants to instill in his followers is purpose and courage. Now, to bring this back to our subject and bring it back to Scripture, let's contrast this with Jesus on the eve of his final battle. On the eve of his final battle, which I would call the greatest battle of all time, when he went to the cross, facing certain death, what does Jesus want to instill into his followers? And we don't have to guess. The book of John tells us in chapter 17, the last thing he does is he prays over his followers. He prays for them. He's asking God for things for his followers. And I want you to hear this prayer from Jesus, his prayer for his followers. And this is really cool, not just for his followers at the moment, not just for the disciples. He prays for us. He prays for you and me. He prays for his followers in the future. So this is a prayer for you, which is pretty neat. Um, It should be up here. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The night before Jesus goes to his battle, what does he want for us? What does he want to give instill in us? He could have asked for so many things. Four times he prays for unity. He didn't ask for courage or strength, endurance, patience, or a million other good things, which I'm sure he did pray for us at some point, right? But this is what we have written down. On the eve of his battle, unity was on his mind. And guys, as I studied for this sermon and, you know, for a second time now, 
Um, I have become increasingly convicted that unity is a much bigger deal than we make it out to be, that it matters a lot more than we make it out to be. Because we'll break relationships, we'll split churches, we'll create new denominations over preferences, over how to interpret a single Bible verse while ignoring a mountain of Scripture that says, don't divide, unite. Stop fighting and be one. And so we have to do something with this mountain of Scripture. We have to do something with these commands. We have to do something with these pleas. We can't go on like it's just sort of an optional, yeah, it would be nice if, every, if all the, you know, if the stars and moon align. Yeah, unity would be great. That's not the picture we get in the Bible. But I think perhaps part of our problem is that we just don't have a good picture. We don't, we're not carrying around the right picture uh, uh, of what unity is. Um, so to get a better picture, I think um, Paul is actually helpful here. In Philippians 2, um, we, we see Paul and he, he pleads for unity, but he also gives us a useful picture for it. So um, this is uh, Philippians 2. It says, um, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and you can kind of feel him pleading right there, if there's any of these things, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Four things he says. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And I want you guys to notice how um, the second and third thing, having the same love and being in full accord, they're sandwiched by this uh, being of one in the same mind and, be, and, and of one mind. They're, sand, they're sandwiched by this one-mindedness. And this is a literary device that he's using to draw important to, importance to the concept. And we have to ask ourselves, what does this one-mindedness mean? What does it mean for us to be one-minded? And I think, you know, Paul's writing's helpful, but Paul's life is also helpful because we know from looking at Paul's life that what it can't mean, and it can't mean never having a disagreement. Because when you read about the life of Paul, you'll find out he had a couple of dust-ups with, um, with other Christian leaders in the Bible. So, one thing we can dispel is that, you know, it means not having any disagreements. Believe it or not, we can have healthy disagreements. Our calling is to unity, not uniformity. But what we do have to agree on, what we do need to be one-minded on, is the gospel. And that is that God is good and loving. God is good loving, God is holy, and God created us to be in a relationship with Him, but our sin has broken that relationship, and that Christ's work, His life, and His death on the cross is sufficient to save us. That's the gospel that we need to be one-minded about. We can be open-minded on a lot of things, but in order to have gospel unity... 
we must be one-minded on the gospel. And another way you may have heard this talked about, and sometimes in church language you hear people talk about um, open hand versus closed hand issues. So a church might say, we carry these issues open-handedly and we carry these issues closed-handedly. And and closed-handed issues are issues that cannot be compromised. We hold, in this hand, we hold the fundamental truths of the gospel. We cannot be united. We cannot be of one mind. We cannot share the same love with those who preach a different gospel, with those who preach that there's another way to be made right with God than through faith in Jesus. If someone's preaching a different gospel, that you can, you can reach the Father in a different way than faith in Jesus, that's not someone we're going to be able to be unified for. We're not going to have gospel unity. We're not going to have a one-mindedness. But on the other hand, there are open-handed issues. And these are beliefs that we might have feelings on, and we might have strong feelings on, but they don't compromise the fundamental truths of the gospel. And we can still have gospel fellowship. We can still have the one mind, same love relationship with people who feel differently on them, who come from different perspectives. And so having this dynamic, this open hand, closed hand dynamic, it's really helpful. But of course, what do we want to know? Well, where's the line? Where, where, do, I, where do we draw the line? And I think probably a lot of you have an issue probably fluttering up into your mind right now and go, which hand is my issue that I'm thinking about right now? Which one does it land in? We want to figure out where are the dividing lines? Is disagreement X worth splitting over? Would you split a church over disagreement Y? And my response here is two-parted. The first question I would ask is, does the issue in your mind, does it challenge the fundamental truth of the gospel? Is it preaching a different gospel? The second question, it's more, it's more of a, it's not even a question, it's a pushback. And what I'll say is, this approach of defining our dividing lines, it's the wrong approach. It's not a healthy way for us to think. We're asking the wrong questions if we're asking, where can I split? As a people loved by the same Savior, our default mode should be for looking for reasons to unite, not to divide. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Our default mode should be unity and peace. Let's not define ourselves by what we're against, right? Let's not define ourselves by what we're not. Define yourself by the love of Jesus and unite with others who do the same. And when we do this, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be gorgeous. And I believe this is going to happen. And it's going to be beautiful Even though we're diverse and we're different and we have unique thoughts and we have unique backgrounds, we have unique cultures, we have unique worldviews, we can sing 
praises to the same God, side by side, arm in arm. And I really think this will be a huge, this will unlock so many things. You know, the unbelieving world is going to see this. And as Jesus prayed, then they'll know that we're from him. When they see us loving each other, when they see the unity between us, it's going to be attractive. They'll see this people, this tapestry of people united by their love of Jesus, and they will marvel at it. And sometimes I think, you know, it's good that we go on missions as churches. And it's good that we send missionaries out to different parts of the world. But if the world got a glimpse of the unified body that we see in Scripture, if we were to live that out, it would be so attractive that we wouldn't be sending, they would be coming. Evangelism would be a lot different if we were living this out. And it sounds crazy because it's like, it sounds too easy to say that the, almost the best thing you could do for your evangelism in Middletown is love the people that you're in church with. It sounds too easy. It's like, no, 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 no. There's better ways to do evangelism. I need to go knock on doors or I need to, you know, go and um, serve here or do this and do that. And, and yes, of course, those are good, good and noble things. But if we were really loving each other, if we were really embodying the unity that we see in Scripture, man, people would be begging to come in here. Jesus, in um, John 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It is a gorgeous picture. It is a beautiful picture. But how do we get there? How do we unlock this picture? How do we get to a place where we can be united with our brothers and sisters in this room and across the globe who love Jesus? Well, I gave you the answer in the question. (laughs) Uh, It's right there. We have to love Jesus. It's right there. to, To be... To put things in a proper order, yes, we have to love Jesus, but first, we have to be loved by Jesus. We have to surrender to the love of Jesus. That verse I just read, John 13, listen to it again. He says, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Not as you have loved me, but as I have loved you. Christ's love moves first. And we have to surrender to it before we have any hope of loving Christ, let alone each other. Perhaps to kind of put it a different way, um, our only hope for gospel unity is between people or peoples who truly know Jesus. The only way we're going to ever achieve the gospel unity that I've been kind of painting a picture of or the Bible paints a picture of is between peoples who know Jesus. And knowing Jesus is a lot different than knowing about Jesus. I'm not talking about people who know about Jesus. I'm talking about people who know Jesus. 
If you put two people who know a lot about Jesus into a room together and they start interacting, what's going to happen? Well, I think they're, first they're going to kind of size, size each other up. Who knows a little bit more? All right. Who's, who's the leading authority? And then they're going to kind of create a hierarchy and eventually there'll be dissatisfaction and there'll be division. However, what happens when you place two people who, whatever they know about Jesus, they know Jesus into a room. They know Jesus as their Savior. They know Jesus as their Lord. You put them, there's going to be instant, instant connection. There's going to be instant fellowship. Despite any differences in theology, any differences in culture, whatever, there's going to be a one-mindedness. You love Jesus, I love Jesus. That's plenty to build a relationship on. In, uh, in his book, Until Unity, Francis Chan, he warns us of what he calls um, the dangers of what he calls the fellowship of the lukewarm. He calls it the fellowship of the lukewarm, saying that most of the disunity that we find or that we see in uh, today's church is not really disunity between Christians. That may happen. That's probably a little rarer. But he says most of the disunity that we see today in today's church is actually disunity between Christians and people who look like Christians. It's between people who know Jesus and people who know something about Jesus. And what he's talking about there in that, that latter group is, is people who acknowledge Jesus' role as a Savior. They believe it all up here, but they don't follow Jesus as Lord. And the argument he's making, that's just not really a category that exists in the Bible. There's not, that's not a choice you get to make. <laughs> if you're a Christian, you accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. You don't get to pick from one and not the other. These are people who have not fully surrendered to the love of Jesus. And the unsurrendered, Chan writes, will always be at odds with Christ's followers. There will always be conflict. And then he went on to ask what I thought was the most challenging question of, this, of, of the book. He says, If you are prone to division and disunity... If you're having a hard time loving your brothers and sisters, then you have to ask the question, has the Spirit really entered me? Do I really know Jesus? If I am being plagued and followed by um, disunity and um, division, if, if that follows me everywhere I go, I, and it's tough. And when I read this, I don't, just honestly, it, I got shook. And in the book, the next paragraph is like, he's like don't be defensive. The, the worst thing you can do right now is be defensive. Be open because this is really, really important. I mean, this is eternity stuff on the line here. So don't, don't say, absolutely not. There's no way. I, I love Jesus and I know it. He's like, just ask yourself the question. 
Do you know Jesus? And that's a great question we need to ask ourselves. Have we accepted Jesus as both Lord and Savior? Both Savior and Lord. Because you don't really get a chance to choose. It's, a, it's an all or nothing sort of deal. And I spent a few days in prayer just asking myself this. It was, it was, it was kind of unsettling, to be 100% honest. And <laughs> I'm like, my 40th sermon, and I'm asking myself, like, question that you ask on the first day of Christianity, you know? Like, but it was valuable. It was really valuable to pray, the, to pray like this for a few days. And I asked God to help me surrender. I said, God, just help me do it. I don't know what, what I'm holding on to, and I certainly don't know if I have the power to break it on my own. Help me surrender. Help me to accept the love of Jesus. And then as these prayers have been sort of ongoing throughout the day, I, I just continue to ask God, where can I surrender? Where do you need me to surrender? How can I make Jesus, not Dan, Lord? And I believe that this level of reflection, this, in, this intensity of reflection, is the first step towards unity. We can't skip steps. We can't get right down into humility. We can't get right down into serving others and, and, and all the other things that, are, that will come. The first step we have to start with is do you know Jesus? Or do you know a little bit about him? So to have gospel unity, we have to understand its importance. And we have to understand the gospel that we're, what we're uniting around. What, what stays in the closed hand? And then we have to surrender to the love of Jesus to accomplish it. So we have to hear the plea, we have to see the picture, and we have to receive the power. And we're going to head into communion. And as we head, let's ask ourselves deep questions. I think communion is a great place for deep questions. You know, it's interesting that Jesus invites us to a table, and a table is a place where loved ones gather. But it's not a place usually for a quick bite. You know, this isn't a drive through This is a place for thoughtful reflection. And as we come and we take his body broken for us and his blood spilt on our behalf, it reminds us of the depth and the need that we have and the length that Jesus went to reunite us with the Father. And this act of coming to the table weekly, this rhythm of coming weekly to the table, it reminds us that this isn't a mere one-time transaction. This is an ongoing relationship. And then the music that you'll hear and the servants serving communion and then the other partakers in the room, it reminds us that we're part of a family. We're part of something bigger that God is building. And then the question in our head as we do communion is, where do I need to surrender? Where do I need to surrender? And then we're going to ask God's help to to help us do it.
So for some of us, you may, maybe you've, you, you don't know Jesus, but you want to. Um, you need to surrender to Christ's love. Um, I would say just pray for that. Acknowledge your sinfulness and your need for Jesus. And, you know, as easy, pray that you can surrender your life. Hand over the keys of the car to God. It's a prayer, a prayer you're going to have to pray a lot in your life, so it won't just be a one-time thing. Um, for some of us, we're not sure if we know Jesus or just know about Jesus. And honestly, in my mind, this is the scariest place to be. I'd rather be in one of the other camps, but this is the scariest place to be. Do you want to stay there? Is that where you want to camp out? I sure the heck don't. Let's pray for Jesus to overpower our defenses. And let's pray that Jesus replaces us on the throne of our lives. That's your prayer. And finally, for the rest of us, we know, we know Jesus, but you know, we're also still a work in progress. We're, we're imperfect. There are still areas of sin in our life that create division, that sow discord between us and God and us and our brothers and sisters. Um, ask God to illuminate these things for you, to illuminate these areas of your life and to give you the power to surrender. So we're going to come up here with that question in our head. Where do I need to surrender? Um, if you're someone who, who doesn't know Christ, and, and, um, or I guess I should say everyone's invited, but if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, um, if that's not where you're at, um, if you have no intention of, of you know, making, uh, uh, being in a relationship with Christ at this moment, um, I want to say thanks for coming. You know, we, we appreciate you sticking with us through these uh, uh, things. I hope that the service has at least been somewhat intellectually or emotionally um, interesting, stimulating for you. Um, instead of coming up here for communion, which I don't think would make sense, um, I'd invite you to stay where you are, but think about a moment in the service, whether it be in a song or uh, a verse or in a comment that was made that struck you as interesting, that maybe struck you in a new way. And I want you to kind of reflect on that while communion's happening. Um, otherwise, we're going to go ahead and uh, start our time of uh, communion. I will, I will pray for us and we'll get it going. Um, God, I confess that, Lord, I have not been um, someone who, who takes this commandment, this plea for unity very seriously in my life. Um, there's something in me that's okay with, with divisions and is okay with um, having a side or being on a team, Lord. And um, God, I pray you replace that part of me and that replace that part of us with a vision of a united church and um, uh, just a, a beautiful picture of peoples who are different and who have different feelings and different emotions and different backgrounds and different viewpoints and different theologies, but who truly love you, Lord, and are united around that love. And God, I hope someday to see, um, to see that picture, and I hope to see the, the, the world transformed by it. Um, God, I realize that in order for that to be, it starts with individuals who love you, that we can't, we can't sidestep it, that it has to start with 
just between me and you, Lord. And uh, God, I ask you to help me um, lower the defenses. Um, God, I pray for um, you not to be just my Savior, but also the Lord of my life. I thank you for both. And I, I trust that, um, that you will be more than adequate to do both of those in my life, Lord. And I pray that for every person in this room today, that you will help us to uh, find new ways to surrender to your Lordship. Thank you, God. Amen.